The time that I was his secretary, one of his secretaries, and I came did last week also to um, raise questions about things that you've read. But in reflecting on this and reading it, I also had a lot of thoughts I wanted to start with sharing it. So if you don't mind, I'll do that. Um, the first uh, section, of course, that we're dealing with is the guru-disciple relationship. And that is really the heart of Gyanamata's message. It's interesting, though, that the first chapter of the book is on right attitude. And I was talking last week about how right attitude really determines everything. If we can get our ourselves orientated in our consciousness in the right direction, then, then whatever comes to us, we'll know how to regard it. So even to have the relationship with the guru, is the, the basis of that is right attitude. And even the section about the guru, it's having the right attitude toward the guru and knowing how to respond. Um, there's a few things that are very pertinent that really have to be dealt with before we go anywhere else with this. And in the little introductory remarks written by whomever here, it, rem it, it states that Sister Gyanamata understood that the guru-disciple relationship was founded in divine law. And even though we sort of speak of that, for those of you, which is almost all of you, who are disciples or who have taken um, the meditation course that we offer here and where you, I mean, I say that not that you couldn't have learned it somewhere else, but I, I know essentially what the content of the discipleship class is that we offer. There's a lot of talk about you have one guru and it's ordained by God and this is a relationship that you have to live through. But there's another aspect that, that really struck my mind that was fundamental to Gyanamata there, which is... Um, let me, I'm going to back up just a step because this is pertinent to this. We, we talk a lot about attunement. And in uh, the subject of, of the disciple-guru relationship, the subject of being in tune with the guru of, is, of course, a big issue. That's what we're talking about all the time. And, and sometimes um, people get restless under that concept or rebellious, or feel that it's narrowing their options, or they don't like somebody else saying, you're in tune, you're not in tune. It's, uh, as Swamiji says, it's kind of our way of telling people they're damned and they're going to go to hell. You know, it's, it's, it has that same kind of quality to it if it's used improperly. But at the same time, for example, when I, I, a group of people is singing, there's a way that it, it needs to be done. And people who have perfect pitch, you know, can sort of, there's a note, they know what a note is, and they know what the sound of that, of that is. They can just replicate it from memory because it's an exact vibration and they know what it needs to be. I'm amused in this. There was a gentleman who was part of our community at Ananda Village many years ago. His name was Albert, and he was a seaman, and he would go out to sea for months at a time. He was from Norway, as it happened, and... Then he would come, and then he would spend his off months in our community. He was sort of a gruff kind of seaman type, very energetic, very determined, and extremely serviceful by nature, to a fault, as this story will indicate. And uh, we, were, we were organizing a choir, and he got in the choir, and he was singing tenor in the choir. The problem was, of course, he didn't sing very well at all, and he didn't have a tenor voice. <laughs> And so somebody suggested to him that perhaps if he was going to sing, he might try singing bass. And he said, nope, 
we need tenors. <laughs> you know, just like that. <laughs> and that was just how we saw it. That was what was needed. That's what I'm going to do to a fault, as I said. But of course, it didn't work because there was a sound that was required. It wasn't a question of sincerity. It wasn't a question of goodwill uh, or anything. It was that there was a sound, objectively speaking, that existed, and everyone had to serve something that existed. It wasn't a matter of opinion. And when we talk about attunement, we have to really understand that there is a divine vibration. If we're talking about being attuned to this path, there's a ray, is what Swami called it, which is such a perfect way to put it. Just a a particular window on the divine which comes in, which has a certain um, consciousness to it, which is, quote, our ray, or Yogananda's ray, and those of us who are trying to be disciples of Yogananda, even to sub subset it even more through Ananda, it all comes out and it has a particular sound. And it's not anybody's opinion. It's not, you know, my way of doing it, your way of doing it. It's the way the sun comes through the window. You have, Kriya, you have Yogananda, which puts it into a certain ray. Then it comes through Kriyananda, it puts it into another ray. And it just simply exists, like, literally like sun, sunlight through a stained glass. And if you're trying to be in that ray, you have to objectively relate to it. And you have to, you have to be humble enough and have enough of a disciple's attitude to have a constant interest in what that actually is and not a sort of a bargaining attitude of maybe you'll listen, maybe you won't listen, or, you know, well, that's your opinion, this is my opinion, it's all democratic, we'll all just decide. You have to at least start from the premise that it actually exists. Now, of course, you interpret it individually, you live it individually, each of us has our own way of being, but nonetheless, there is an unchanging divine reality that we are all trying to find. And, and a, a premise of that is this simple fact, which the scriptures say, and all the masters endorse that the way to divine consciousness is through the grace of the guru. And from our little point of view, we can have all the opinions we want about that. You know, we can just have our little opinions for here, from here till the end of time, and they just won't have a whit of effect on it. It's either true or it's not true. And if we are going to follow this path, our masters and all the scriptures that we follow, the Bhagavad Gita, Yogananda's writings, the autobiography of a yogi, everything Kriyananda says, it just states that, that the way that the individual soul finds its way back to the infinite is through the grace and the consciousness of the guru. Even when Yogananda was alive, he, he often continuously referred to his own master as the source of his inspiration and of what he was doing. And he would pray to Sri Yukteswar, and he would, he would speak of Sri Yukteswar as being um, the channel for him even, you know, for what he received. And when he, uh, when, and when he tells the story in Autobiography of a Yogi of how he ran away from his master and he went to go, try to go to the Himalayas to be with Ram Gopal Muzumdar, which is the story in Autobiography of a Yogi, The Sleepless Saint, and he, he didn't want to be in the ashram anymore, and he left his duties, and he went to the Himalayas. He followed this uh, dream of his childhood. Interestingly, Kriyananda tells us that Yogananda was actually away for a year. For some reason, in the autobiography, he truncated it down and made it seem like it was much shorter. 
when you, when you know that, it makes it more interesting the following chapter when he shows back up again at Sri Yukteswar's ashram. And Sri Yukteswar just act as, acted as if he had never left and just took him back in without comment, without rancor, without any anger about it. And Yogananda said, well, it must have been very difficult for you that I just walked away. And Sri Yukteswar essentially said, anger is based on desire or expectation. I have none. So what is there to be angry about? You left, you've returned. Considering that it was a year, Swamiji said he asked, Master, why did you stay away so long? Master said, I'm very stubborn. <laughs> but after he left and then came back, and of course he went to this great saint, Ram Gopal Muzumdar, the sleepless saint, and Ram Gopal said, you know, what are you doing here? You have your guru. You think, that, you think this is going to work for you? You have to go back to your guru. And it was only after he humbled himself, Yogananda did, and went back to his guru, that shortly thereafter, his guru touched him, and he went into the cosmic consciousness state that he'd been seeking all along. Now, on one hand, you think, oh, but he was already a master, he was an avatar. But it's true, but it's not true. He really did. Yogananda, they really do come down to the human level and play the drama out. And he, and he really did need the touch of his guru to become liberated, to become freed, to have that cosmic consciousness experience. The mountains would not do it for him. Nothing could do it for him. When Yogananda was alive, there was a man who betrayed him, an Indian man who uh, Yogananda put a lot of faith in, and then he turned against him and repudiated him and left the ashram. And every year, Swam, uh, Master would send him a box of mangoes. And I believe every year the man would send them back. And Yogananda just said very simply, he will never find God except through this instrument. Just, it doesn't really make any difference what he thinks. It doesn't matter how annoyed he is with Yogananda. It doesn't matter how he has it all worked out that this is the way it is. There is a divine law at play here. There is a, a note, there is a vibration, and we can rebel all we want, and then sooner or later we're going to have to conform to it. Very much like the little bird in the Festival of Light every week. God gives you an instruction. The bird says, oh, I think I'll do it differently. I think instead of sharing, as I was told to do, I'll just gather for myself, because that's sort of the, first, the ego's first feeling, is, wow, more for me. And then it says, and the little bird, you know, continued in this thought, even though repeatedly he lost everything he had. Until finally, he was so battered and beaten that he was willing to ask questions instead of merely asserting the opinions he already had. So he goes from the mission to the revolt to the quest. And the word quest is an extremely important word in that, in that little story. And Sister Gyanamata, in several different places, really deals with that idea of quest. And that's really very, very important for us to talk about here. That just because we say, all right, this is divine law, in Autobiography of a Yogi, you know, it says, uh, the, the, I can't say the exact words, but this is close to it, you know, the characteristic of the Indian culture has always been a search for eternal verities and the concomitant disciple-guru relationship. Meaning once you start really sincerely looking for eternal truth, you will come to the disciple-guru relationship. The, the two are inextricably entwined. So... Um, once we really embark on that, we start with the premise of 
instinctively, intuitively, or intellectually at least, understanding that it's true. But we also have to recognize that we won't understand how to relate to it right away. And that's where we go into the stage called the quest. And Sister Gyanamata, in, in many different of her passages, says a few things that are so vitally important that it really has to be understood because she talks about... see if I can actually um, quote a little bit because it's so perfectly put. Just a moment. She says... Ask him to show you wherein you were wrong if you do not already know that you may improve. And then she says, If you wish to explain yourself, do so, for he always welcomes explanations. But do so respectfully, with sincerity that cannot be mistaken, and with humility. Now, what does the word humility mean? Nothing worm-like or groveling. It means the simple, straightforward admission that you are not perfect, and you know you get nothing in the way of blame or discipline that you do not deserve. All right. Now, I read this, and I thought, the question is, how do we deal with this now? Because we don't really have the opportunity. uh, Gyanamanta was writing to people who were in more or less daily contact with Yogananda in the body. And and you can see between the lines that she was really dealing with so-and-so's having a mood. Whatever you do, she writes to one of them, do not stay away as you have been doing now. But we find ourselves in a very different situation. Um, Even now, Kriyananda is far away from us. You know, you could say, well, he was the is or was, but he still is, that form. Part of it, when I was reflecting on this this afternoon, I was realizing that there's a tremendous tendency to romanticize the spiritual path in just the same way that I have observed that people romanticize human relationships. There's a tendency to romanticize the spiritual relationships as well. Now, what I mean by that is, speaking, let's just speak of human relationships first. You know, David and I have been married, it'll be 19 years this next year in our anniversary time and we have a very good time together and we you know it's it's not been difficult but that doesn't mean that it's always easy you know it's it's it, it's a harmonious relationship but still there's moments when we work at it but all of us in this culture virtually without exception <coughs> are are caught in the midst of the fact that we don't really have any idea what marriage looks like anymore um, until recently marriage had real clear forms. The man did this, the woman did that. Everybody had their roles. And they sort of just acted them out. And if you could act out your part, then you had a good marriage. And it wasn't, even if you were unhappy, it was still just part of the way it was. Women were dependent upon men. Um, Women needed men, uh, needed to be married if they wanted to have children. There were just so many different issues that were involved that just don't exist anymore. So we've taken down the system that we used to know we have replaced it with fiction, with novels and movies and romantic songs. We haven't replaced it with reality. Many people have no existing models in their life of a marriage that they really think would be good. I was appalled once when a woman close to 30 
told me when she met David and me that ours was the first marriage that she'd seen, that she knew, that made her want to be married. I mean, that was an amazing statement. But in fact, it was not so unusual for women of her generation, men and women, because there's just been so much fragmentation. So a lot of times what I observe happens is that people are... I remember once a woman wrote Swamiji this letter just complaining bitterly about her relationship with her husband. And uh, after Swami read the letter, he wrote back, he said, sounds fine to me. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember this other woman came and she talked about this man who wanted to marry her and so on. He was a very good man. She would have done well to have married him. But she said, well, something, you know, like he's not very exciting. And Swami said, there's a great secret I'll tell you. Most marriages are boring. (laughs) You know, it's just like at a certain point, you have to generate your own interest. It's not like somebody else will always keep your life interesting. You have to generate yourself. I mean, some people are more charming and more witty and, you know, more fun. But still, at a certain point, life itself becomes boring. And so I, I find people also complaining about things or presenting to me issues that are not issues. They're just the facts of life. You understand the difference? This is just the way it is. There's nothing wrong. But we don't have any way of measuring it. Now, I was reflecting today that in our relationship with the guru, partly because he isn't present and we, you know, we don't have as many concrete ways of dealing with it, we also have romanticized it a great deal and we imagine that it's less here and now, less, less every day than we think it is. Do, do you understand what I mean? That, so we think, well, Yogananda is not in the body, therefore I have to sort of have this whole big thing going on. But discipleship, as Sister Gyanamata put it, remember she, she said, and I spoke in, the, I think, the first class, when she realized that she needed a guru from her reading, and she didn't have one. She decided that from that point forward, she would behave as if everything that came to her in life was coming from her guru. And, and we reflected when I mentioned that last time, just think about what that really means. Now, just because Yogananda was in the body doesn't mean that the project was really different. You know, maybe he spoke to you and said, do this, do that. But in all likelihood, he didn't that much, you know, because they don't. You know, the, the, the true masters don't spend a lot of time laying it out in front of you. They project a thought or put out a vibration or, or, or just have a slight shift of one kind or another, and you're expected to tune into it. It's not really easier or that, I mean, it's different, but it's not that different. It, it all depends on the inner consciousness that we have. And even as we are right now, if we trust that everything that's coming to us comes from our guru, and even more than that, I mean, all of you, you are in close relationship with other disciples. So it's not that obscure. You look around you. Who is Master going to use to talk to you? Well, he's going to talk to you most probably through people who are in tune with him. And who is likely to be in tune with him? Well, it's your brothers and sisters sitting all around you. It's, it's everybody who's relating to you, especially those who are relating to you in the context of Ananda. Now, we think, well, if I was with Yogananda, I would be certain that he was perfect, and therefore I would be inclined to listen to him all the time. Maybe yes, maybe no. You know, it's just the mind isn't that easy. 
it still throws up its same rebellious ideas. But even the thought that we cling to all the time, who are they to tell me, what do they really know, is usually just a, a subterfuge that the ego uses to avoid asking the very simple question, not who said this, but is this the note? Is this the note I'm trying to be singing? Is this, because, because God's voice, it occurred to me recently, you know, if I think that the divine can inspire me directly, what makes me think he can't inspire someone else directly also? You know that if I get it, quote, inside, that means it's true, but if it comes out of your mouth or your mouth or your mouth, that means it can't be true. It has to come just out of my mouth. You know, where does that thought actually come from? And, and Swami Kriyananda has, has so often said to us, you know, it's not because I say it, he says, it's because if it's true, it's true. It's just as simple as that. If it's true, it's true. So we need to make, make truth our guru, and we have to trust that whatever comes to us is in some way sent to us to help us understand what's true. So then, how do we behave? We behave just the way Sister Gyanamata says, and that's what I was saying earlier uh, in this series. The attitudes that she describes, if we can internalize them and live by them, our lives will work beautifully. And it's not a question of whether she's using it, because later in this chapter she talks about, you know, these minute um, uh, dissonances that she felt with Yogananda, this desire for a little present, this concern about whether she was supposed to make the omelet or just be in seclusion and how much work she's going to do. And you just kind of wish that you could get it down to questions like that. But nonetheless, the issue was quite simply she felt confused, and a little bit out of tune, and so she put forward the right energy to get clear and to get back in tune. I mean, it doesn't make any difference what's pushing you one way or another. It, it's just if you feel confused and out of tune, you need to put out the energy to get clear and get back in tune. And how do you do that? By respectfully and sincerely and humbly trying to find out. You know, by really asking the right questions of the right people, with the right attitude. You can also ask them of yourself inside, too. You can ask Master directly if you ask, respectfully, sincerely, and humbly with a real desire to know. And just and not and he, then she emphasizes you don't grovel, you don't say, Oh, I'm such a terrible person. I remember someone was sort of casting blame upon their head and Swamiji just said somewhat dryly and very simply, he said, Don't heap dirt on yourself, it doesn't help. You know? That's not real humility. That, in fact, just draws more attention to yourself. You know, real humility, as, uh, as Yogananda defined it, which is such a perfect explanation, is simply to be in, in the truth, which is to say, if you know something, you really know it. Many times I know Swamiji has said, if you think you're right, don't give up. And I, I remember he was talking specifically about... Uh, a woman who was doing some work in Assisi, and, and uh, she just was very strong-minded about what she wanted. Strong-minded, not on a based on a lot of knowledge or experience, but he, he, he saw me mention that she was very strong-minded, and she just held on to her ideas, and he said, I finally had to tell her, look, just do it my way, it will work. <laughs> he said, but I still, I respect her for not giving in easily. You know, she shouldn't give in easily if she thinks she's right. But also he knew 
that she respected him enough that he should just say, look, you just do it because I know it's going to work out. He seldom does that. She must have really pushed him far. But it's that, humility, sincerity, and respect. You, and, and you can say anything to anybody as long as you say that. But, but the humility part of it is probably the most important part because you have to walk that really delicate line between not falling into a pit of self-doubt and self-abnegation and self-immolation, uh, I was going to say, you know, just like heaping dirt upon your head, but just the simple fact of which is, I, 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 might, I may be wrong, I often am. That's sort of a line, I don't know whether it came from Sri Yukteswar or whoever it is. I may be wrong, I often am, but this is how it seems to me. And then you ask, as she describes it, you ask sincerely, she describes it elsewhere, you ask the guru sincerely, well, show me where I'm wrong. You know, It's not, show me where I'm wrong. It's just a very sincerely, this is how it seems to me, explain to me why it's right or wrong. And, and all the years that I lived at Ananda Village, and I still do, I had uh, friendship with Seva, with Jyotish, and of course with Swami Kriyananda. And I, was, I just was always in the habit of saying, this is how it looks to me, what do you think? You know, this is how it looks to me. Instead of just saying, this is how it looks to me, I would, I would often say, this is what I'm thinking, what do you think? You know, it's just, so, it's just such a simple habit to get into. And then you get a lot of feedback. You get a lot of feedback from, you know, how, how am I doing? Is this really right? And then you begin to be able to sense for yourself when you're singing the right note. I've been uh, in the oratorio choir, and I, for uh, all the performances, I would try to plant myself between Sharon and Claire. I'm about three-quarters of an inch too tall to stand between them, but I would always slump a little bit when they would line us up, because if I could stand between them, I, I could just sing a lot better. And then we went on this last choir tour, and, and went, I went when the group went to Europe last spring, and we sang that oratorio eight or nine times, however many times it was. And really, for the first time, I began to sense that I might be able to sing this, and I don't have to stand next to him all the time. You know, I can stand my full height and go back a row. But it's taken me all this time, which is now quite a number of years, to just be certain enough of what that note sounds like. And in, in many areas of life on the spiritual path, you do gain certainty. But even when you gain certainty, you always have to have the humility to realize that maybe I'm only certain for now. And so when dissonance comes, whenever dissonance comes, she describes it in terms of, you know, directly with Yogananda, but when dissonance comes in your life, ask yourself the question, where is this coming from? Act as if every single thing that comes to you comes from your guru. Thank you, Joe. Comes from your guru. If this were coming directly from Yogananda, what would I do? It's such a great question. You know, if so-and-so is speaking to me, now not everyone is wise enough for you to actually ask them to lead you, but you can always find someone. We're so blessed in this community of having so many sincere and experienced people. There's always someone who, can, who will objectively answer your questions. Why would we not ask? Well, we would not ask for all the reasons that are written in this book also. That certain something. We have all these different ideas about all the things we're going to hold on to. Let me uh, just say one more thing. Let's see. 
There's one, just one more in this same letter, which is the letter on page 99, where she quotes from Khalil Gibran's um, poem about love. And what struck me is the lines, his words may shatter your dreams. She says, when love beckons you to follow him, though his ways are hard and steep, you must go with him. And she goes on. And when he speaks to you, believe on him, though his words may shatter your dreams. Now, to me, that has always been meaningful because of what I was saying earlier about the romantic idea we have about the relationship with the guru. That in order for us to really find the true relationship and the true divine love, we have to be willing to relinquish our fantasy ideas about it. In order to find a true relationship with another human being, in order to have a true marriage, to be really happy in what's given to you, we have to let, we have to let our dream be shattered. And our dream is usually a false ego idea. And she talks all the way through here about the fact that um, the master will give you what you really, really need. And she says, so he does not care whether you suffer. He does not care whether your feelings are hurt. You know, and we're so protective. She says also, your feelings are hurt. What of it? You know? And of course, she's talking directly that Yogananda, in one way or another, failed to live up to this disciple's idea of what he was supposed to be like. But everybody, again, we have to take this into our life, everybody fails to live up to our little dream of what it's supposed to be like. And we spend so much energy nursing the fact that the world was supposed to treat us differently. And she says in here, one of her fav- famous remarks is in here, it's death to the devotee to ever think that you have been unfairly treated. Now, she's talking in the context of Yogananda, but don't use that as an excuse. You know, you'll say, oh, well, if it had been a God-realized master, then I would have accepted it. Truthfully, not likely. If your mind turns toward the thought that I have been unfairly treated, it will turn toward the thought that I have been unfairly treated. And remember what what I said at the beginning? If you can learn certain attitudes right from the start, Nothing ever happens to you that's, un- that's unfair. Now, sometimes people are wrong and have behaved abysmally. That's one of the ways in which God tricks you. You're absolutely right. They were terrible, and it was completely unfair. But still, you were not treated unfairly. You see the difference? Because the only thing that will ever come to you is your own. And you can't have anything that isn't yours, and you will not receive anything that isn't yours. But... You may explain yourself if you choose to. You see, you don't have to just be nothing. And, and Gyanamata says over and over again, communicate with the guru, write to the guru, tell him what you think, be open with the guru. Don't just fester inside yourself. If you feel you've been unfairly treated, express sincerely why you think you've been unfairly, unfairly treated, but with humility so that you will understand. You see how you can work it? You don't have to just say, oh, Gyanamata says, I can never feel that I've been unfairly treated. I'll never be a good devotee. And then you fall into that trap I talked about last week where the standards are just too high. The out in everything is this part. You can always question what happened to you as long as you do it from a sincere desire to know, an unmistakable desire to know. And that's, that's the whole key. If your attitude is stinky, that's fine. Just be sincere in asking to have it explained to you. 
You don't even have to be smart. You just have to be sincere. All right. And humble. Does that, does that make sense? Are there comments or thoughts or questions about that? Yes, Sharon. I do feel a little bit of a paradox uh-huh. in talking about, you know, in this, this chapter where she says the guru doesn't care if there's suffering as opposed to then his deep, deep feeling for every single disciple. Right. Like, you know, in the eulogy or, you know, other times. So it's just, it's an interesting... Well, to say that the guru doesn't care if you suffer doesn't mean that the guru doesn't sympathize with your pain. I mean, how do, you, how do you phrase it? It's really exactly like a good mother. You know, if, if the mother knows that this is in the best interest of the child, the mother has the capacity to steel herself to your protests because they just totally understand. My sister, I'll just, this is a diversion, but my sister's a very good mother and has raised a very difficult child. He had a marking, this was when he was about eight. He had a... a, a, a a laundry pen in his hand, an indelible marker, and she said he had on his good shirt. He had the pen in his hand. She takes responsibility for saying to him, put the cap on it and put it away, instead of just taking it out of his hand. But he, instead of putting it away, he wanted to see what would happen if he wrote on his shirt. And she'd said to him, I don't want you to get that on your shirt because that's your good shirt. What will happen if you ruin it? His answer was, Daddy will buy me a new one. She didn't care for that answer very much. So he deliberately marked his shirt. She made the decision that, you know, she just didn't care for his sense of entitlement and his lack of appreciation and his defiance. So he, he was, he's at the age, he was at the age, he's older now, where money, the actual value of money was not so obvious to him, but he just saw it in terms of quantity. So, you know, more pennies was better than more 50-cent pieces because it was quantity. So she told him that he was going to have to replace the shirt himself. So she took his piggy bank, and they went to Kmart. She directed him to the rack of slightly more expensive shirts because they had some that were too cheap. He picked out his shirt, and he was going to have to pay for it. Now, she said up until now it was just kind of a lark, but they get to the counter in the Kmart, right? And she opens up his piggy bank, and she wants to really make the lesson, so she starts with the pennies. And she starts counting. It was like $14. And he gradually begins to realize that his entire piggy bank is going to go to this shirt, he begins to scream, he begins to kick, he begins to struggle, and she just inexorably keeps counting the pennies, you know, like this. They're in the Kmart. You know, he's just having a total fit, and she expects to be arrested for child abuse, but she is determined like this. And, you know, she just took him all the way through. Now, that's what the master does to it. And, and then, you know, they went home. And so that gives her the power later, I mean, later on in their life, when they were at my parents' house, we were all there, and it was time to go. And he, you know, he's, he's a lawyer from the East Coast, even though he's a small child. And he just, <laughs> absolutely everything, he has to argue it with you. It's just his nature. He has to challenge it. He has to be persuaded. You know, he's just, he just never says yes. Davy Novak had a son like that. Now she has a granddaughter. The son was just a rebel from the beginning. The granddaughter is just as sweet as she can be. And Davy says, I never knew a child could say, sure, anything you want. (laughs) (laughs) No children ever spoke like that. (laughs) So when my sister's with her son, and, you know, it's time to go home, and he's just, and he's trying to persuade her. She just folds her arm, and she says, have I ever changed my mind when I speak to you like this? 
and you know, and she never had. You know, it was just like that was established. But you see, the parents, that's where we talk about Heavenly Father, Divine Mother. That's, that's the feeling of the guru. You stand back from that and you think, what a marvelous way to raise a child. And you just cheer. If you're the child, you say, you're the meanest mother in the world. I hate you. One little boy once said to his mother, you know, I, she was, he was five, I hate you, you're the meanest mother in the world. And then he went out and he, she told me, the mother told me later, she felt that he, he, he didn't feel like he'd really made the point, so he came back and he says, you weren't even my first choice. <laughs> she was intrigued by this. She says, darling, who was? <laughs> he said, a lady in the Philippines, but she was taken. <laughs> Master says, when the sperm and ovum come together, quote, I'll quote him, there's a flash of light in the astral world, and all those souls who are ready to reincarnate, who are in tune with that light, rush to try to get into the womb. And sometimes two get in at the same time, and you have twins. When she told me the story, I told her that. She laughed even more. She said, because her son wants things and starts to go for them, but then he always stops and hesitates and thinks about it a little bit more. So she can just see him in the astral world, seeing that lady in the Philippines and seeing the chance and then just hesitating just a little too long and someone got in. That is the craziest picture to me in the world, that story that Yogananda tells. It's like I used to work in retail and when we'd have big sale days, you know, all the ladies would line up. They would just, I, that's all I can think of is them all lined up, you know, trying to get into Macy's at 10. But uh, So I don't know what it means. But coming back to where we were, which is very relevant, and very, very relevant, which is why I've spent so much time on it, always think of it in terms, this is the humility. There's a divine wisdom happening here. And I have to say from 30 years as part of Ananda, I have to try to explain this to people. It's not as if everybody is totally wise. It's not as if nobody ever acts from selfish motive or anything like that. People do. But there is what I call a magnetic honesty about the spiritual family, which is really the power of Yogananda's ray, which is because of the sincerity and the deep devotion. And I find it could be absolutely true in this community, as in all the communities I've ever been in, things happen as they're supposed to happen. And if you're meant to be mistreated because some egotistical person is going to really take advantage of you, Master waits until there's just the right egotistical person and he uses his faults to teach you what you need to learn. Do you know? And, and as I said before, that's the exquisite part of it sometimes is that you are right. You know you're right. But you're still wrong because Divine Mother is doing what she wants to have done and she doesn't care if you're having a temper tantrum in the Kmart. She's not embarrassed and she doesn't care. You know, because this is what you need. Does she not love you? Oh, no, she loves you much more. Does Master not love you? Oh, no, he loves you much more. Otherwise, think what a mess we'd be. So it's after the first reaction of fury and anger and abuse, just stop and ask yourself, you know, why should I be in the stage of the revolt? Let me be in the stage called the quest. And that's the theme all through Gyanamata's letters. Always ask what is true. From the premise that everything that happens is part of Guru's will for me. Don't think just because he's not in the body, it's not true. And it becomes true the more you ask for it. Otherwise, wherever this was in here, there's this incredible statement. Let me find it. Let's see if I can find it. Oh. If your soul... 
Let's see. He can and will help you, but only if we cooperate with him. If the soul resolutely clings to the things that drag it down, no miracle happens to release it. That was, a, that was an incredibly important phrase. If you resolutely cling to your delusions, there won't be a miracle. You can't cling to them. That, that's a subtle point I want to go back to. It may continue on this way as long as it chooses the soul. At last, the guru, however patient and long-suffering, has to say, take your own course. You don't really want it to come to that, do you? But, but this is the point. If the soul resolutely clings to these things, no miracle will happen. I, I can't put this into better words. I tried to on Sunday. And you have to just look to your own experience. I have certainly experienced in my life that I will pray to be released to some, for something. But it's not until I really want to be released from it that my prayer is answered. And the moment I really want to be released from it, almost to the day, my prayer is always answered. Does that make sense? It's just something that really does happen. And she goes on to say, when we really do not want to do a thing, we simply don't do it. So we may say, oh, I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to be upset this way. I don't want to have this attitude. I don't want to have this desire. But when we really don't want to do a thing anymore, we simply won't do it. And so there'll just come a day when when the, the consciousness realizes, I really don't want this anymore. And so that was why I said on Sunday when I was talking about prayer, if you don't actually really want to be free, then at least pray to want to want to be free. You know, to really want... Our delusions are so complex that if you're finding that God isn't answering your prayer, then back up a little bit and pray a little differently. You know, what is it that I'm holding on to? What is it that I'm resisting? What is that? We're coming right back to where we started. Ask God, where am I wrong? You know, what, why, is this, why am I not being answered? What is it that I'm not really seeing here? You can just keep doing that over and over. Then what happens, too, is life gets so interesting. You know, it just gets so interesting. There's always something interesting to do because there's always a new level of what's going on. What's happening here, Lord? And then listen. Sometimes he'll answer you internally. Sometimes he'll answer you through someone else's mouth. Well, any comments or questions or... Favorite passages you would like to talk about? Yes, Dharmaraj. So along that line, one thing that really sort of leveled me is she said to one of the nuns, I think, have you ever persisted in an action that you absolutely felt no desire to do? Yeah. Of course not. Yeah. And I was in the middle of saying, oh, I'm, I'm not liking what I'm doing. And then I just said, oh. Yeah. Well, I like it a little bit. I like yeah. it enough to keep doing it. Yeah. So, yeah. And just keeps going. Yeah, it's such a simple thought. Again, it's just such a simple thought. So many of our ideas are so simple. And you see how they're applicable? It doesn't matter what level you're on. But if you have something that you think you want to get free of and you keep doing it, you're still enjoying it on some level. It's still just a theory to you that you would be happier without this. Because when it's really valid, you'll no longer do it. And, and that's what I felt within myself with some very, very long-standing bad habits. Just sort of one day... I got far enough away from it all of a sudden to realize that I was enjoying it. <laughs> Even though I disliked it, it, it worked for me. It, there, was, there is a certain pleasure in being in delusion. You know, there's a certain ego satisfaction in it. It's just more fun to indulge the ego than it is to really repudiate it. And, and that doesn't mean that all those stages are not necessary. 
they really are necessary. Every single, every single failure is absolutely required, and that's the, that's the stuff of which your successes are made. So when I say, when you really want to get free of it, it'll go away instantly. Again, it's sort of like the right attitude. You just have to humbly understand that even though I really don't like this, obviously I'm not quite finished with it yet. And so you have to ask Divine Mother, why can't I get, why don't I get this? You know, help me, help me to understand, why don't I understand this? Why don't I really want to get rid of this? And part of it is habit, and she does say that here, when any action is persisted in, it is not simply a matter of habit. Though habit counts, she says, if you look closely, you will have no trouble in discovering the red thread of desire. You wanted to do it. Yes, seven. Well, it comes in all over the place. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, if you come down to... Um, she tries to write about it. Let's see. When she talks about Brother Lawrence, um, she does say that if you don't put out energy, the guru can't help you. And so that's, again, where you have to look. Are you really... And these are very subtle points. You know, I'm going to say them to you tonight, and we're all going to meditate on them for the rest of our lives. This very subtle point, if you really hold on to it, no miracle will happen. See, a lot of times we are, because we know that God can take it away from us, we're really just waiting for a miracle to happen, rather than actually, sincerely doing our best to repudiate it. We're suffering, we're wailing, we're weeping. We are suffering, but we're still waiting on some level for a miracle to happen, and not really fighting hard enough. But he says, she says here, it's on page 104, about uh, Brother Lawrence, who wrote the book, The Practice of the Presence of God. When he failed, when he did wrong, he said, that's the way I am, and this is the way I shall always be unless you help me. I have found that to be one of the most useful prayers in the world. You just say, look, Divine Mother, when you leave me alone... I make a mess of it. And the only hope there is is for you to just come and help me. And Brother Lawrence was so truly out of his ego that he just knew that he was just an instrument of the divine. And if God wanted it to be better, he needed it to be better. This simple prayer, this simple attitude of the mind shows the truest humility. It says, I know well that I am nothing, but let your power flow into me and I shall be saved. I shall be all that you want me to be, all that I long to be. Then she says, so brutally, tears and groans of shame and agony will not do for the soul what the above simple prayer will do. Lord, change me. And that too, I have to add, when, when I have actually really understood that, that's when change takes place. But she also does say, do you ask Paramahansaji's help that you may overcome this tendency? Do you ask him to pray for you? Um, And in other places, she says to the other side of it, that if you don't put out your own energy, God can't help you. You have to cooperate with him. You have to do your little part. It's this very fine balancing act of recognizing that you have to do your sincere best and also recognizing that what really changes you is the grace of God. And again, keep these thoughts in the back of your mind. And maybe you've already experienced them and know them to be true. But Sister Gyanamata says this is the way that it works. And as you persist on the spiritual path, you will simply discover that it's true. You will discover for yourself this fascinating balance 
between the fact that you try as hard as you can and then what finally changes you is the grace of God. And that you know for a fact that it was not your own effort that changed you, and yet also you also know that if you hadn't tried as hard as you did, God would never have changed you. I don't think it can be made more clear than that. It just has to be experienced. But keep it in your, in your mind so that when you have the experiences, then you'll say, oh, I remember. That's just what she said would happen. And now you know it for your own self, and then you kind of find the right line on it. Stephanie, what were you going to say? Sometimes you've talked about the analogy of the fan and the karma, mm-hmm. the bad habit, and you unplug the fan. Mm-hmm. It's still going. Mm-hmm. How does that fit in? It, you know, no, it's a bit... Well, it, it's, it's the way she says it. You know, you really won't do it when you cease to want to do it anymore. So there's still a piece of us that is just still more interested in being in this delusion than it is actually in being free. But part of us is affirming that we want the freedom. So as long as we're affirming that we want the freedom, we're not really feeding the delusion anymore. We're just in the momentum of our habit. Of desire. Yeah. I, and I, I mean, I, I can't, I mean, you know, my bad habits are mostly that I'm reactive and, and I speak too fast and I say things that I wish I didn't say. And I know I shouldn't, but I do it all the time. Because somehow it's just more fun to explode <laughs> than it is to be quiet. And I know that's true. And I mean, even in the moment that I'm doing it, I know that it would be nicer if I were quiet, but still, there's just a rush of energy and I'm just going to do it. Now, it's not actually that I want to, but I do want to. You know, it's just somehow, it's more fun to just go with it than it is to do all the effort necessary to stop it. But I'm improving. And, I mean, there's a thousand things. Some things are much more egregious than that. And, you know, just real, real self-destructive habits that you know, I know I shouldn't, I know I shouldn't, I know I shouldn't, here I am doing it. And you just have to keep running it until, but you have to, that's why you take Divine Mother with you. You know, Brother Lawrence says, this is what's going to happen without your help. When people say, well, why would you take Divine Mother with you when you're doing something that isn't good? Because that's the way of affirming Brother Lawrence's prayer. Well, Lord, I'm just going to keep doing this, and so you're going to just have to stay with me until we work it out. If you, re, if you don't bring, if you don't really ask God to help you, then he can't help you. Even the guru, after a while, just has to say, go your own way. He doesn't give up on you. He doesn't release you, but he recognizes that you're not going to cooperate. Just go your own way. You know, if you're really determined to do it your way, go your own way. And I'll wait, and when you're interested again, then you can come back around, and I'll still be here. I mean, Yogananda never really left Sri Yukteswar, but he left for a whole year. And Sri Yukteswar just said, well, if you don't want my help, then you don't have to have it. Go learn. When you're ready, you come back, and I'm still here. So it is with us. In terms of breaking a habit, the the red thread of desire that she talks about feels true, and yet if I focused on the fact that, oh, well, I just want that, as opposed to focusing on, oh, you know, this is how I would, where I would rather put my energy, Uh I don't know how helpful it is for me to say, oh, yes, I want that. No, you, the, the I want it is just humility. The I want it is, 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 is simple honesty, just it's deductive reasoning. I'm still doing it. I must still want to do it. 
it's not based on a like, oh, I really want to do it sort of feeling. It's just if I'm still doing it, obviously I'm still getting something from it. Because if I wasn't, I wouldn't do it. And so it's just, it just puts you like, you're, no pretenses, no... I mean, somebody recently was talking about something. Oh, the last thing in in the world I want is X, Y, and Z. I said, no, not actually. (laughs) The last, really, because if it was the last thing in the world you wanted, you wouldn't be behaving the way you're behaving. So, you know, be truthful. Say, I I really regret the fact that when I follow my desires, all these consequences take place. You know, that's the true statement. Just try to stay very, very honest. Humility is just being honest. And an honest statement to say is, I don't know why I persevere in doing this. I don't know why I persist in doing this. It's what I say about my own faults after, you know, it blows up in my face for the hundred millionth time. I say, why do you keep doing this? But then I just have to say I'm just too, I, I, you know, somehow it still works for me. I'm still getting something out of it. I don't know what I'm getting out of it, but I'm sensing what I get out of it because I've really started asking the question. Instead of just falling into an agony of remorse, I just try to be much calmer and just say, here we are. But then after that, forget it. Put your mind where you're going. And that's what, when Swami said, how do you deal with a fault? He said, look at it honestly, learn what you can from it, and then put it out of your mind. And he, she says here, um, oh, now I've lost it. But she says, when the attention is withdrawn from the self and its weaknesses and focused upon the one source of strength, the doors and windows of our being are open toward heaven to receive a blessing that does not fail to come. So if we keep our mind too much on what we've done wrong, then we're out of tune with the right vibration. Yeah? I find... But she's just, just one, one second. You see, if you can get this attitude down, you, see, you understand how this is all just attitude? If you can get this attitude down, it won't make any difference what happens to you for the rest of your spiritual life. You will always come out okay. You know, whether it's a gigantic failing or a little teensy-weensy one, if you can just deal with it every time like this, you'll be okay for the rest of your life. That's why, that's why it's so important. Yes, Kumari. Are you talking about spiritual habits or habits in general? There's no line where spirit is... We're talking about... Well, then the, ha- the habit. No, the habit that you're talking about then is is um, is dull-mindedness. You need to you need to have more energy. I mean, the the habit, the real habit, is the habit of unconsciousness. You need to have more energy. You need to be be more conscious moment to moment. Yogananda said that the greatest obstacle to self-realization is fillers, and uh, dull-mindedness. Yeah, and, and thus incarnations go by. <laughs> and nobody's hurt. You know, nobody's hurt. Just a whole lot of time is wasted. You see, Gayanamata was just the opposite every single minute. And she writes, you know, in some of her letters back here to Master, after all these years, you know, I've just, from the first time I met you, I've just kept my mind always on you, and now it's a constant stream. Is it worth it? Is it worth the effort? You know, you ask yourself, is it worth the effort? Well, I think it might be. 
But but in in the moment to moment when you're sitting there and wanting to do something else. So you just have to come to a humble appreciation. This is who I am. You know? And Lord, if you want me to be different, you've got to help me. I'll do my best and then you have to help me. Agony and shame don't really help at all. Yeah. Why don't we take a short break? Let's take 10 minutes. Apparently the uh, bathrooms in the back are not working, so you have to go to the teaching center. The time that I was his secretary, one of his secretaries, and I came in the afternoon, four or five o'clock, which was our habit, and he said, and we're sitting down, he just suddenly looked so serious at me, he said, I was meditating this afternoon, Ashen. I really had an inspiration about something that I really want you to understand. Oh, no, never mind. <laughs> I mean, and he, he sucked me right into it, you know, I was just right on the edge <laughs> and then I said it's that irritating huh he said yes please stop <laughs> oh god <laughs> he got my attention that was really that was profound <laughs> yes Lisa I didn't hear was you said that right one of them the other was fillers. Nobody heard it because you didn't understand what I meant. By fillers, he meant things you do just to fill the time. You know, I will read Ann Landers and the funnies in the morning. I it's, didn't want to hear that. No, no, it's just a filler. Yeah, I know. And Master said, you, day by day, it doesn't seem like much, but you know, over a long lifetime, you just spend a lot of time when you could be uplifting your conscience, just filling the time. Yeah, and. There you are, folks. Let's not be too hard on ourselves. Let's just take it for what it is. You have to really be able to understand it straight on, then be at peace with who you are. That is the art of the spiritual path, and there's no way around it. Because you, if, you, if you try too hard to be somebody you're not, you will crack in half. If you hate yourself for who you are, you will just destroy your chances. You just have to say, this is where I am, but I'm sincere and I won't always be here. Right now, I'm enjoying it. I like Ann Landers. I like the funnies. I try not to read any more than that. Sometimes I do. Yes. Are you going to say something, Cher? Okay. Any other questions or comments? Master didn't use the word dull-minded, but I, I'm having a blank on the actual phrase he used. But the essence of it was, I might have even used the word absent-mindedness, meaning just absent, unconsciousness. But you get the point, whatever his actual word was. But filler was the word he used. I think so. I don't know whether I read that or Swami said it to me, but the word filler is different. It's in essence? Is that where it is? Yes, that's where it is. It's in essence. So you can go look it up. Essence of self-realization. It's somewhere in there. That's where I read it. I think I closed the book and tried to forget it as soon as... <laughs> and it was just too unpleasant. Okay, any other um, comments or thoughts? Yes, Cyrus? Uh-huh. Silence and, and she talks about the guru. The, uh, uh, carrying the burden of the world. Yes, in fact, I marked that one, yeah. Uh, last time at, at Christmas last year, something where Jesus, praying to Jesus, he can 
still take out harder food, and even though it's 2,000 years later, this idea of I almost feel bad, and it's going to be played out on his body, like Jesus was alive for me. And I pray to have some of my burden lifted. Would that increase his agony? And what if he's not in his body anymore? It sounds a bit abstract, but I'm actually feeling what does it mean to ask a master for help if it could? Um, many years ago, Swami Kriyananda was in seclusion at Ananda village, and something happened in my life. I have no recollection of what the event was, but rather than disturbing his seclusion, I dealt with it or did something without communicating with him. But I should have spoken to him. I needed to. He wasn't in a deep seclusion. He was just in a modest seclusion. And afterwards, he said to me, why didn't you talk to me? And I said, well, I didn't want to disturb you. His answer was very startling to me. He said, you insult my friendship. He said that you would imagine that I would care so little about you that I would object to being disturbed when you really needed me. He said, you insult me. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? And I had to really stand back and think about that, that that was, in fact, what I was doing. I was in the name of, you know, not wanting to be like this, but I was really not trusting his greatness of character because my need was real. It wasn't frivolous. It wasn't, it was real. But I didn't trust his love enough to, to ask for it. And in, a, in a, a certain sense, the question you ask is the same. This is the guru's responsibility. This is his joy. And we think of it as, quote, agony, um, but it's not at all. It's his joy. He's, he's God's instrument. If it hurts his body, he doesn't care about his body. Yogananda himself said, once the dinner is eaten off the wisdom plate of the body of the life, he said, what happens to the plate? Who cares? You know, the body is a vehicle for God realization. Once you realize, who cares what happens to the body? That's why they do it. It just doesn't make any difference. But our unwillingness to ask is a, a very convoluted way of the ego protecting itself and also an insult to their friendship. You know, if a friend needed your help and it was in your power to help them and they didn't ask you, how would you feel? You would say, why didn't you ask me? I, I wanted to help you. You would feel hurt that they didn't ask you. You see, the relationship with the guru is just a, an extension of all of our other relationships. That's why they're all given to us, so that we can practice where it doesn't seem as confusing and really understand. I realized, I was saying to some people last night, for many years I treated Swamiji with less consideration and care than I treated anyone else in my life because I was so worried about imposing on him and so busy thinking about myself that I, was, I wasn't even just even the common kind of courtesies or, or considerations or, or generosity that I would give to anyone I didn't give to him. You see how confused the mind can get? And, and that's that kind of question. Now, on the other hand, and I'm not going to be able to say this exactly accurately, but this is the sense of it. When the Virgin Mary appeared to the three children of Fatima, or maybe it was, was it three? Fran Francesco and I, I, this, the details are not quite clear, Lucia and others. Swamiji tells this story in this way. And they, th those, these children were very, very saintly, and they became 
very devoted to Jesus from the visions and so on. But they, they took different tacks. One of the children, one of the girls I think it was, had such sympathy for all that Jesus was doing to help sinners that she really wanted to help Jesus. You know, it was sort of the, the positive dimension of what you're saying. It wasn't that she withheld trying to spare him, but she recognized the burden he was carrying and asked if she could help him. And she did little penances and all sorts of things. They weren't little. She was a great saint. But she, she did everything she could to help Jesus help others so that it wouldn't be such a burden on him. You know, now another of the children just took it from a completely different point of view and never really thought like that, just it, it lost himself or herself, whichever child it was, and just the great love. And it didn't occur to that child to go in that same direction. Everybody's different. So, so that thought can have a divine expression. It's just that was not the divine expression of it, to be afraid that you're, you're causing him trouble. Believe me, they're a lot more bummed out when we cling to our delusions <laughs> than when we give them the opportunity to help us. As think about yourself. Put yourself in a very common sense situation that would be comparable in your life. Think what your response would be, and that's, that's it. It's not the same context, but it's the same reality. It's, nothing, nothing changes. It's a very consistent world all the way up. And that's what I was saying. Don't romanticize it. It's very consistent. Every little thing you're experiencing now is the shadow and the seed form of everything you will always experience. There's no point where it, it changes. Yogananda writes that in his Gita commentary. It's just an orderly universe all the way up. As, as above, so below. If it's not the right thing for you to do with your neighbor, it's not the right thing for you to do with Master. And if it's the right thing for your friendships, it's the right thing for your friendship with him. Stephanie? In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, if you can't give me this, give me this. And if you can't give me that, give me that. And then if you can't give me any of this, just bring me your failures. I know. Isn't that dear? Yeah. I love that. You all know the verse she's talking about? It's, a, it's one of the sweetest verses in the Gita. Krishna's telling Arjuna how to deal with it. And he says, you know, think of me all the time. Don't ever take your mind away from me. But if you can't do that, then worship me when you can. And if you can't really worship me, then think of me occasionally. And if you, you know, bring, if you can't bring me great offerings, bring me little offerings. And if you can't do any of that, bring me your failure. Swamiji said once in a satsang, it was so profound, he said, God is very pleased when you offer him your successes, when you recognize I am not the doer, you have done this. But he's more pleased when you offer him your failure. It's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. That's what's, that's what, because then you really are accepting. It's easy. It's not hard when it all goes well to be all strong and open and say, oh, well, I didn't do it, God did it. But when you fail, to realize there's no difference. If God did the success, God did the failure. That's Brother Lawrence's little prayer. Look what happens to me, Lord, when, it's, when you leave me to myself. A friend of mine once, in another ashram, she was given a job that she couldn't do. She wasn't really good at it. And uh, every, she just struggled, but she just didn't have the talent for it. So finally, just in desperation, she went and meditated, and she prayed to her guru. She said, look, you want this job done well, you get somebody else. <laughs> if you're satisfied with this, then you leave me here. And after that, she figured, it's not my problem. <laughs> and she just muddled along, and that was that. 
But that's, you know, it's just, there's a lot of truth in that. That's what Sister Gyanamata says. You just sincerely and respectfully say, what the heck is happening here? And then after that, it's your problem. <laughs> we think, see, we get all mixed up. We think that spiritual success looks like worldly success. We're supposed to be so good and competent and we do it well and everything comes out right. Those people are not on the path. <laughs> because it works for them. This world works for them. The people who are on the path are people like us. <laughs> I mean, that's a hard one to get, but there's a wonderful story. I told this when we, those of you who are in Assisi, you heard me say this, but uh, this is a story that I have not heard from Swami, but I heard that it was true that Oliver Black, who was Yogananda's, one of his very advanced disciples who lived in Detroit and had a, call, a center there, and Oliver apparently said to Master, Master, all I'm getting is the halt, the blind, and the lame. And Master said, Oliver, they're your people. <laughs> Swami actually said once to me, he said, the people that you think are really together, it's just because you don't know them very well. <laughs> but if, if, if it's not, if you're not suffering and falling on your face, you're just happy in the world. You have do you understand? So it's just the way it is. It, it's not, a, it's not, we're not talking about worldliness. We're talking about being a devotee. And yes, of course, great things can be done by devotees, but not necessarily. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. What matters? Your attitude. You see how it comes back to there? You think that you'll have the right attitude when you get it all together? You'll get it all together when you have the right attitude. All right. Any questions, other comments? Uh, well, they take it from Pam, so she doesn't. Uh -huh. um, there were a couple uh, times which you mentioned his unconscious actions, right? Oh, that's so fascinating. It put exclamation points beside that. You want me to read them? Well, tell me what page. Um, I marked them too. Pardon me? Uh, page 101. Right. Right. The, the guru is the vehicle of God at all times, whether his action is entirely unconscious or deliberately planned for the disciple's good. Every moment of his life, consciously and unconsciously, he is working for the good of his disciples' souls. It is very interesting to watch the result of his unconscious acts. Yeah, she says it elsewhere, too. Uh, 109. 109. I, I mark those, too, and I can talk about those. Where it was that? You have to read it to me. I can't find it. Um, I have to answer this one from my experience with Kriyananda. And I have to say that most of my understanding of Yogananda comes from my experience with Kriyananda. And it's written up on the page. The first one you read, was it 103, 101? He, when he says, here's the key to it. Um, he, every moment of his life, he is working for the good of his disciples' souls. So you start with the premise that a great saint, you know, and certainly an avatar, the only reason the avatar incarnates is for the good of others. When you reach the, a level of greatness, a, a great soul has dedicated his life to helping others. That's all he's really interested in. Um, and many of you, you know, are, are profoundly dedicated to your own self-realization and to serving others. It's not that obscure. Again, as above, so below. Maybe some of us have a more conflicting desires. We're also here for a little bit of our own pleasure and all of the other little things that we want to do. But still, all of us can claim 
a profound level of determination to help others as a pathway to our own self-realization and as a goal. Now, you have to realize that just what goes on in your head isn't really who you are. Who you are is the sum total of all your aspirations and your real commitment, your vibration. And so if you're really dedicated to wanting to serve others, you will be doing it all the time because it's your vibration. And so, and if you're also dedicated and have trained yourself to not go from self-will, but as much as possible to do what's right, it becomes instinctive. You know, it's, it, it's instinctive with many of you to just be generous, to be kind, to be considerate, to think about others, to, to, to always look for a way to help, to just, it's a very natural gesture. Um, so, you don't, many times you're helpful to people without even thinking about it, because it's, it's just, it's not a conscious act on your part, you just pick up litter, you help old people across the street, you speak kindly, you smile when someone seems to need help. You don't sort of decide each time, you just naturally flow that way. You express joy, you're enthusiastic about things, you, you have a divine thought and it uplifts people around you. So consciously or unconsciously, you know, many of you are just always helping people. Now, if there are no conflicting cross-currents of ego, or very few conflicting cross-currents of ego, then more and more of that goodness flows through and if there, are, there is a more profound, uh, disciplined years of acting only intuitively according to the best, then you will always be doing that. And especially if you have trained yourself, as Yogananda said he did, I only act, I only do what Divine Mother tells me to do. I mean, that was just a simple statement. I only do what Divine Mother tells me to do. And when Swami came to see him for the first time on September 12th in 1948. And the, the, the secretary told him that Yogananda would see him even though he didn't have an appointment. And Yogananda said, I didn't see you because you came all the way from New York. Last week a woman came all the way from Sweden and I didn't see her. I'm seeing you because Divine Mother told me to. I, he only did what Divine Mother told him to. And he didn't have to, Yogananda didn't have to constantly check in it had become, he was so in tune that it would be just like where his energy would naturally go. You know, he would turn down this street, he would go there, all the kind of things intuitively you do. Swami Kriyananda is a, is a similar soul, not an avatar, but a similar soul whose all his years have been dedicated to doing what God tells him to do intuitively. So he'll just naturally say and do things that have enormous positive benefit for people in their lives, often very specific benefit, he won't have any idea of the repercussions of it or even why he said it. He just felt to do it and felt to say it. Because the attunement is so powerful that it's just he's always able to use you. Now again, think, have you ever said something to someone that you just, you just might even be a casual remark? And someone will say after, oh, thank heaven, that was exactly what I needed to hear. And you didn't say it because you knew it was what they needed to hear. It was just came out of your mouth, consciously or unconsciously. And, and it's just a matter of degree. And, and there being nothing else that interferes. And this is Gyanamata's understanding of Yogananda is that you can't discount anything he does. You can't say, oh, that's his personality. He wasn't really thinking about it. It doesn't mean anything. 
Gyanamata saying to the disciples, every single thing that ever happens, consciously or unconsciously, is God through the guru. Now, I, I could not speak as dramatically about Kriyananda. I would not. But all I can say in my years of association with him is, why don't you pay attention because you're not going to be really sure? And I have certainly found in my years with him that exactly the same statement is true. It's not like he's consciously doing this and this and this, but there is a flow that comes through him that if you pay attention, uh, has an, uh, almost always has enormous or at least some significance in your life. Because if you want to receive, God, will, God and Guru will come through those who are in tune. So if you're receptive... That's why from the, from the beginning of my relationship with Swamiji, I have always treated him as if he were Yogananda. Because if I treat him as if he were Yogananda, then Yogananda uses him. If I do not treat him as if he's Yogananda, then I either can't hear it or I don't draw it. Do you see? And it's not the same as saying he is, but it, after a while it gets to be like, now what are the shades of distinction here? I mean, Gyanamata says, treat all of life as if it's coming from your guru. So certainly you would treat an advanced disciple as if he were speaking for your guru. I mean, why not? And, and through that experience, that's when I've seen. And, you know, I told a story. I mean, I'll tell a big story. For example, this is a big one. Swami Kriyananda years ago bought a very expensive piece of computer equipment that could write music. I, it wasn't here that I told this. And, and it was like a $30,000 piece of equipment like 20 years ago. I mean, just a phenomenal sum of money. And he just bought it, and, you know, all the people were saying, you know, there was a lot of criticism. Why is he buying that instrument? He doesn't, you know, really, it's so expensive, and just all the blah, 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 like this. It was so complicated because the systems had not been simplified enough that he, it was way beyond him. You know, he talks sometimes about he just can't be bothered. So he had to invite this man who had the brain for it, to come and work for him. So for six or nine months, this man worked with this machine, got it up to a certain capacity and the programs and all that stuff, and it proved finally to be completely futile and just became a very expensive doorstop. It just couldn't, uh, it just wasn't refined enough. Twenty years later, now Swami has a program that works. So you think, you know, so everybody gets to say, well, see, what a waste of money, you know, you really should have listened to me, I could have told him, you know, that's people's energy. And I, to me, because of my experience with Swamiji, I didn't know what it was about, but, but I know that he's not a fool and that he responds intuitively. So many years later, that very man, I'm sitting somewhere else and he's talking, he says, I was about to leave the path. He said, I would have gone off the path, but then all of a sudden I got this call from Swami to come and work on that silly machine. He said, in six months of working closely with him on this futile project, he said, saved my life. Now, I know that Swami didn't say, oh, I think I'll buy a useless machine so I can hire this man. You know, he just saw the machine and bought it. And as Swami himself puts it, he no longer analyzes in questions. You see, he doesn't, he doesn't function just from, oh, what does this mean? I have to have a rational answer. If it feels a certain way, he just does it. That's the sort of, quote, unconscious part. If it feels a certain way, you just do it. You don't know what you're doing, but this is where you need to go. That's why I'm real attentive 
to everything he does because I'm just real interested to where this one's going to go. You know, because very often the box I'm working in is like this, and the event starts here and it goes across, and I make all these real strong pronouncements about where it came from and what it means. I didn't know that the event started over here, you know, and the only part I saw was just this little blip, but it, no, it's going there. And he didn't either. It just came across, and that was what needed to happen. Boom, like that. Now, I don't say that so that, you know, everybody gets real paranoid. I'm just telling you that's my experience. So when I read this, I say, oh, I know that one. I've seen that one. And I also have seen people just disregard it. People are always talking to me about, well, I don't, I don't tune into Kriyananda's personality. And I say, what, what exactly does that mean? And I know that I'm sure that people said that about Yogananda. Well, when he's acting spiritually as the guru, then I'll listen to him. I mean, I'm sure that's what she was answering. But we were just having dinner. He was just, you know, whatever. But she says, no, 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 no. There's no ego there. No one dwells in the temple but God. Therefore, when do, what do you think? Even if he's just having dinner, where, where could it be coming from? Interesting, huh? And something to aspire to, you know, to just within yourself. And, and don't underrate ourselves. You know, if you're sincere about helping people, God will use you. Think about it. It happens all the time. Swami even answered that question once because people have dreams, you know. We have, sometimes we have dreams of one another or dreams of him. And I asked him once, you know, Swami, when people have these dreams, you know, of you're doing something or something like that, I, he, I, I said, what is that? And the uh, first one was really funny. He said, oh, I don't know. He just wouldn't answer me. I don't, I don't know what it is. But then he said, very simple answer, the superconscious never sleeps. Superconscious doesn't need rest. It's just, the, it's just the, bo- the body that goes to sleep. So just because your body is asleep and your conscious mind isn't aware, your soul and your superconscious is perfectly wide awake. And if your whole life is dedicated to helping people, why would it be different when you're asleep? You know? So you could easily be out gallivanting around doing your job. <laughs> you know? Very easily. And he does too, but you don't know it. Your conscious mind doesn't know it. Yeah, Starmarsh. He also said an answer to that when someone says, did you say this to me in a dream? He said, I don't have any memory of it, but I would have said it. Yeah. Well, that's how he, that's how he sort of says, judge it. Would you, know, would you have said it? If it's good advice, and that's what Swami always says, if it's good advice, who cares whether it came out of a poodle? I mean, if it's good advice, <laughs> just take it. Truth is truth. doesn't matter the source. Yes, Stephanie. Um, it just, I know I've heard... I don't know if you've said it or who said it, but at various times um, that we don't need to always be hanging on Swami's every word because sometimes he just sort of, you know, because sometimes it's like if it's just a casual, I, I don't know how to put this, I think, a casual situation that well, let me put crazy. everything, all this stuff into everything he said. Well, let's say it drives him crazy if you do. Yeah. Oh, he asked for the butter. Here he asked for the butter. <laughs> I know when Happy Winningham was in the hospital. Um, Happy Winningham is this woman with AIDS. She had AIDS. She's died, died now. She lived for eight or nine years at Ananda Village with AIDS. She kept dying and coming back. And she, was, she was dying one of the times that she was dying. She was in the hospital. She was dying. And uh, she was all swollen up. And I can't remember. I never was there with her. And, and so everybody thought she was really going. So the whole, you know, there were all these people in the hospital, and 
um, in the hospital room, and then Swami came in, and you know, everybody, Swami's here, Swami's here, Swami's here, you know, just like this. And then he's sitting there, and then everything he said got whispered back down the line. <laughs> he's asking her how she is, how she is, how she is, how she is. <laughs> and then he said, Happy, your nose looks like just like a big, you look like Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. He looks like Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was, of course, it was a big moment. And then Happy laughed, just laughed, and she got better. <laughs> I mean, it was all so serious and so heavy. And he said, you look like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. She had a very good sense of humor. And then she just came back. And then he said some more serious things to her, too. Once she got her attention, he, he said some things about, this is not the time for you to die. So she didn't. But having said that, it drives him crazy if people are just always breathing about everything he does. At the same time, listen, Sister Ganamata tells you, so the, the attitudes, again, her context was he was there, but, but it has to be relevant. She says, I have an at- instinctive attitude of inner listening. I don't chatter. I just, I, I try to understand. I mean, number one, that's good advice for all of life, isn't it? What a novel thought, that we should just be still inside and listen. I will remember that one. I'll tie it around my finger. Yeah, it's worth knowing. And certainly when you're in the presence of someone whose both their words and their vibration are potentially uplifting to you, don't set up too many cross-currents of ego. But another cross-current of ego is over-anxiousness, lest we miss something. Think about how you would behave with anybody that you liked, that you felt very comfortable with. How would you behave and behave accordingly? It's not that easy, but it's not that hard either. When uh, Swamiji was, uh, when we were there this last time, he made a comment one night that he said, it was, he always felt awkward relating to Yogananda. And I said, sir, were you uh, nervous, uncomfortable? What do you mean? It was so funny. He said, oh, no. I mean, he just answered me immediately. Oh, no, not that. He said, it was just awkward knowing that he was in front of me and inside of me at the same time. He said, I could never quite figure out how that all worked. And that was it. And that was when he said, once he said he was thinking about it so intently and just staring at Yogananda, just this, th- that attitude, trying to understand, he's in me, he's outside of me, he's in me, he's outside of me. And Yogananda just sort of laughed lightly and handed him an apple. <laughs> you know, just sort of like, you poor lad, just stop. <laughs> But then on another occasion, essentially, I, and I can't remember the words. No, I think Swamiji just said this. It wasn't Master's words. Swami said, I, but he finally understood that you understand first from love, and then you understand from your head. And so too much anxiety about what you're getting is just self-concern. If you really love someone, you're just open to them. You don't have to try to be open. And, and as in specific, also in a general way. You don't have to try so hard to be open and always be anxious you're going to miss something. Just love, relax, be. And that's what Sister said, you know, just be still, listen, pay attention. Okay, any other questions or thoughts? Yes, yeah, sure. It's like we, we have no problem with, you know, dinners, business dinners, or I'm thinking, you know, if you're a musician and, and you're a great teacher, 
you know, and you go to dinner, of course you're hanging on every word and you're not, you understand that, you know, just in chatting they're going to mention a fingering or whatever, you're learning all the time. And, but there's no weirdness about it. I think we do, there's something about it being spiritual that it, it takes on this whole other level, but in business and music and acting and <laughs> all these things. It is, you, you, you've just said it. What you're basically saying is you get interested in the other person, you're receptive to what they have to say, you're not always worrying about yourself. It's just self-forgetfulness. And it doesn't matter if it's dinner or on the golf no. course or, right. you know. Right. It's just there. And, and it's true with the relationship with Swamiji, but it's true with anybody who inspires you. Spend time with them. Try to be an uplifting company. Try to be where people are doing things that you want to do. I mean, that you want to become. Yeah, yeah everybody knows mentoring now. The guru is just the same. It's just more subtle. Yeah, just be natural. It takes a long time to be natural. But see, that's, I, how many times have I said that? Just be yourself. Just accept yourself. Just relax over and over and over and over. Be humble. Be respectful. Be sincere. But put yourself out there. Where am I wrong? What have I done? You know, be genuinely interested. Tell the master what you think, and then be genuinely interested in his observations about it. And then ponder them, instead of contradicting them all the time. Yeah. And Yogananda says God doesn't appear to most people because they know he would just, that you just want to argue with him. <laughs> really. It's just so. But if you think you're right, don't ever give up either. You know, so it's just you have to balance both of them. You're not meant to be a pushover. You're just meant to be sincere. I had another thought, but, well, I've lost it. Okay, is there anything else? Oh, I know what it was. Um, I was in a conversation with someone. This will be my last thought. This is about romanticizing things. And she said to me, I don't know what the love of God feels like. I don't, I don't believe that God loves me. That was the comment. And, you know, and sort of then said, what does that feel like? And I said, you know, look at your life, because the person's life was all about the spiritual path and everything has worked out. I said, you, you, you made this too hard. Everything in your life has just been set up perfectly for you. And you think you wonder whether God loves you? You know, You're, you have a guru, you have a spiritual family, you have all these opportunities, and you actually wonder whether he loves you? I mean, what do we think is going to happen? And that was when I started conceiving of this thought that people don't understand what a good marriage look, feels like either. You know, because we, we have all these romanticized, emotionally oriented ideas that we don't even recognize when we're really getting what we want. And so you just have to stand back just a little bit and appreciate and not make it too hard. Just make it real simple. Well, that might be the end of the story. Did you hear the last half of the class, all of you? I'm so pleased. <laughs> you can get the tape of the first half. <laughs> all right, thank you very much. Next week is the th next three chapters. We didn't, it was seven, eight, and nine or something like that. Okay.